Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11. We're going to give you an hour of science now. On the line with me in our virtual studio is Dr. Ray. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. And um, I know it's not quite sciencey, but happy Halloween. Oh, yeah. I, I see well. you're, you're wearing your radio costume. <laughs> yeah, I'm dressed as a radio guy. Uh, so for everyone out there listening to the radio, you don't need to imagine what that looks like. But it's um, it's bland. It's bland. I think that's fair to say. Uh, Stacey, good morning. How are you going? Morning. Morning, Dr. Shane. I'm very well, thank you. How are you and how are you, Ray? Oh, I, I can't complain. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm excited. We, we, we've gone out to dinner uh, outside, and you know, we, we we've seen people. And uh, I realized, uh, like all of Melbourne, I need a haircut. But uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, actually. The, the one the one shop, uh, you know, I think during the lockdown, most of us would you, you'd wander past coffee shops, and there was a big queue out the front because people could still go and buy, you know, takeaway coffees. But now that queue seems to have been relocated to the barbershops and the hairdressers, and uh, you're seeing people. I've noticed a lot of chairs out the front of barbershops with um, scrappy-looking kids with, with uh, you know, all-round mullets that need to go. So, yeah, definitely something is changing. Now, we've got a lot of science to get through today, so let's uh, start off with some news. Dr. Ray, we'll start with you. Uh, Dr. Shane, I'd I, I love to. This story grabbed me because um, it was two things. One, it's about our humble cassowary, and cassowaries are just amazing animals. But two, it was also in looking at uh, anthropology and paleontology of, of past cultures, um, uh, you know, I'm always amazed about the thing you can look at to learn stuff. I mean, we've seen great examples on the show of uh, dental paleontology, of people looking at fossilized teeth to understand people's diets. But this is actually, I had no idea, looking at eggshells. So uh, this is looking at uh, um, uh, peoples in Papua New Guinea in the uh, Pleistocene to Holocene period. So we're talking about 126,000 to about 8,000 years ago, where uh, a study recently, um, which actually had researchers from University of Queensland and ANU, were looking at um, hunter-forager uh, cultures in, 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 the, in the rainforest in Papua New Guinea, where they were actually looking at how people interacted with, with birds. And so not just looking at the, the leftovers from 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 villages, but also looking even at eggshells, looking at the size of the eggshell and the thickness of it tells you about when somebody might have taken an egg. And so they were actually looking at how people were looking at cassowaries. So cassowaries, of course, as, as you know, are, are one of our, our, our class of large legless, uh, large legged flightless birds called ratatites. Um, now, the large ones are the cassowary and the ostrich. I mean, the smallest, smallest one, most famous one we might know of is the kiwi, which is apparently the only nocturnal one. But in, in this, uh, leading up to the Holocene period, on islands, there were actually a couple large style, large birds of this class that actually became distinct because of their extinct, because of their interactions with people. There was the Madagascar elephant bird, and in New Zealand, there was also the moa. 
And, and I looked up skeletons of these. These were like large birds, way taller than people, disturbingly large, but, you know, <laughs> which means they had a lot of meat to them as well. But so the, the cassowary, though, has survived, both on the island, uh, smaller island of Papua New Guinea, as well as in Australia. And that's because, from what they can tell, how the hunter-foragers interacted with the cassowary was pr- pronouncedly, pronouncedly different. Um, there wasn't that much hunting of the adults. But what they did find is that they did that the foragers did actually take cassowary eggs. Now, someone here is thinking big omelet, but 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 no, it, it, but but actually the other interesting thing was they said, well, when they started to look at what aged eggs they took, they tended to take the eggs close to hatching. Hmm. Um and and so what was surprising about this is they said, well, they could have there is a current delicacy of a in 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 foraging cultures of of birds close to um hatching is is when you might eat them but but they actually think there's there's possible evidence for they were rearing cassowary chicks now this would if this is i mean there's there's reasonable evidence for it this would be the earliest evidence of people ever rearing a a, a chick or a bird because chickens didn't happen for several millennia after this Mm, wow And, and i just found that fascinating and and then I was thinking about it, you know, having seen a cassowary, obviously behind a fence or from a, yep. a, a safe distance, you know, not a bird you want to mess with, aside from the horn and and, and the, you know, it, it, obviously it's not a dinosaur, but that velociraptor-like claw it has, you, you kind of go, mm, you know, I, I don't know about rearing that. I mean, for people that keep chickens, you know, you can have that one aggressive chicken that kind of, you know, might chase children or peck at them, and you know, and it's, it's only got chicken feet, and that can be imposing, but... You're thinking, keep a cassowary? That that, that sounds like a a little dangerous. And and so I thought, gosh, is this just me? But as it turns out, the researchers even noted, they said, you know, it's kind of surprising that the first bird that you might try to rear is one that's aggressive, territorial, and can be quite lethal. We were surprised about that, too. But as they pointed out, what they have found is because people have, in more modern eras, raised cassowary chicks, is they actually will imprint on humans when they hatch. Mm. And so they can actually, they're, they're a bit more docile. But I just found this fascinating. From looking at the age and the thickness of the eggshells found in, in, in these in these long, long abandoned villages, they were, and digging through the ground, they were actually able to find evidence of, of raising birds yeah. at least 8,000 years ago, if not later, well before chickens. Yeah, that's very um, cool stuff. And as you say, it wouldn't be the, it wouldn't be your first choice, something that, you know, is the closest <laughs> closest thing you can find to a, a velociraptor in terms of, I'll just, I'll just keep that in the backyard. Um, but I suppose it depends on, yeah, as you say, it, it depends on how they how they react when they're raised yeah. with, with humans. And yeah, cool stuff. Yeah. Mm. Thank you, Dr. Ray. Stacey, Thank what you. have you got for us? Oh, well, um, a bit more serious today, uh, Dr. Shane, as you know, marks the first day of COP26, mm. oh, well, tonight. Um, so that's the climate change conference of, of the parties in Glasgow um, where you know, government officials and business leaders and scientists from around 196 countries are coming to d- together to discuss global efforts to address climate change. So what I thought I'd do today is just summarise some of the big ticket items that scientists have been raising this week, yep. um, which highlight why COP is so important this year. 
So um, first up, COP is significant because it signals the first um, COP since the 2015 Paris Agreement. Um, when that agreement was signed, um, countries now have a legal obligation to submit climate plans in line with the latest scientific assessments. Um, so essentially back in Paris, they all agreed to take action to limit warming to between 1.5 and 2 degrees above pre-industrial levels. And then after Paris, countries uh, needed to go back home, develop their climate plans, implement new policies and set them up for success and then report back. And so Glasgow um, signals submission time. Uh, in the interim, um, scientific assessments have already been undertaken and they provide a kind of report card for each country. Um, and what we've um, discovered uh, this week, uh, more and more evidence is coming out around how uh, countries are performing. Um, there are 55 countries, including Australia, Canada and New Zealand, that have been assessed as having climate policies and commitments that are either critically or highly insufficient, um, indicating that they reflect no or minimal action against climate change or are inconsistent with the Paris Agreement. Mm. Um, so it's a bit of a concern, but part of um, COP's goal is to elicit stronger country-level plans um, uh, from the first time, really, since the Paris Agreement. Um, but another notable factor for COP is that it's coming at a time when scientific models relating to climate change have matured. So, um, you know, we've all become very familiar with uh, mathematical modelling and, and, and looking at projections with the COVID-19 pandemic. Here with climate scientists, um, measured projections are now more precise and that helps set the global warming goalposts goal for countries. And so it can help people see the potential consequences of inaction, so future warming, but equally modelled scenarios can help us visualise the potential positive effects of policies designed to curb warming into the future. So this week um, we saw revised estimates from um, the UN Environment Program as summarised in the Emissions Gap Report um, relating to how effective current climate policies have been at reducing that predicted um, uh, average rise in global temperature. And what the report shows um, is that with current action, predicted 2030 emissions have reduced um, by around 7.5% compared to what they would have expected without these actions. Um, yeah, is, that, uh, is that a whole 7.5%? It's a little bit yeah. underwhelming. Mm. <laughs> so we really needed to see about 30%. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, so the projected curve based from the last 10 years is going down, but the problem is it's just not bending down fast enough. Um, and if we stay on that trajectory, um, the global warmer by around 2.7 degrees by the end of the century, which is well above the Paris target. And then what they did in this report is then um, conduct more sort of scenario modelling to factor in what would happen if all of those pre-announced net zero commitments were to materialise, which is also, I guess, um, yet to be seen. But they, they found that if all of those commitments are to materialise, um, the additional pledges could shave off a further 0.5 degrees, um, which would set us on a course for 2.2 degrees by the end of the century. Again, still woefully inadequate, um, but it is slightly better than was anticipated by scientists a decade ago. But essentially, you know, as the science improves, so too do we need to improve our ability to be responsive um, to those signals. Um, and uh, I guess, yeah, COP will be, all eyes will be on Glasgow, but hopefully um, getting scientists and, well, getting politicians to agree with the scientists that the target that we want is 1.5 uh, as opposed to that twin target that they had in Paris in 2015 of, of um, 1.5 and 2. Mm. Do you think, Stacey, there is a, a bit of momentum in terms of 
you know, once you've been hearing something for a while, you know, hopefully it starts to feed in and people start to accept it a bit more. I mean, you know, these these numbers of 1.5 and 2, you know, sort of a decade ago really didn't mean a lot to a lot of people. And I think it was hard for them to get their head around what it could look like. Um, we've had some some pretty substantial changes in weather patterns and so forth over the last few years. We're seeing a lot of, a lot of changes around the world. Um, I mean, do you think that's starting to have an impact on on the on the political thinking? And I know it may not, you know, locally, but you know, internationally. I do. I do think so. Um, as as we start seeing more and more, ex, you know, extreme weather events um, and these um, tipping points, these you know um, events that are causing a lot of havoc, it becomes more tangible for people. And I think a lot of governments around the world have been, um, you know. Um, walking the walk and not just talking the talk. Um, and then the other sort of uh, bonuses, I guess, around industry and, and business that are also now starting to pledge their own, um, mm. you know, net zero sort of targets. And, and that's starting to, um, you know, drag governments along with them, hopefully. Um, but it's still not quite where we need to be. But I think, um, yeah, we're all become accustomed to reading these epidemic curves and uh, looking at modelling. So now perhaps um, even though our climate science have been saying this for many, many decades, um, we could uh, essentially focus on, on bending that curve down now. Um, that's the focus of, yeah. of global efforts going forward. I mean, the other thing I always think about is, you know, we've we've always had this aversion to any level, especially in Australia, of, you know, government and national debt. You know, God, we, we don't want to have any national debt. But, you know, during the course of the pandemic, we've been, ah, you know, about that anymore. Let's just rack up whatever we need to. And I think, you know, may, maybe there's less of a, you know, even a political focus on parties going after each other with regards to national debt levels than there, there, there has been in the past. And maybe now we can just say, you know, we, we actually, this isn't debt, this is investment. And we need to invest somewhat in in these particular things. Now, that, that is going to cost, but over the longer term, it's going to, it's going to pay off substantially. And that sort of short-term political cycle thinking, um, you know, maybe, you know, you would hope maybe we can get a little bit past that. Yeah, I'm hoping that's that's shifting. Time will tell. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you, Stacey. Thank you, Ray. Uh, we're going to take a break, folks. And when we come back, we'll be uh, going into some detail with a specialist from the Bureau of Meteorology. Um, we're on that topic today, so it's going to be a bit of fun. Uh, I'm Dr. Shane. We'll be back in just a minute. Here's some music for you. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on Three Triple R. On the line with us now is Dr. Mika Peace. Mika is the senior research scientist at the Bureau of Meteorology in Fire Weather. Good morning, Mika. How are you going? Good morning, Shane. Good, thanks. It's great to have you on. This is a topic that uh, I think I've been looking for a guest to talk about this for probably about 15 years. So we just sort of stumbled across the press release that the Bureau put out because of your good work this week, which is great. Um, So I think we're going to have a really good conversation about this. Now, I think one of the things um, that we don't normally think about is the interaction between the sort of fire on the ground and what's happening in a, I guess, a meteorology sense with regards to the atmosphere and so forth around that. Now, I suspect everyone's sort of aware of the fact that often it's lightning strikes that start 
start bushfires, and this is a this is a pretty big deal in Australia. But talk us through what you've been looking at with regards to, especially with these big bushfires we had over 2019-20, so the summer a couple of years ago. Um, talk us through the, that interaction between the sort of the atmospheric conditions and and the fires and how they play upon one another. Yeah, well, we've learned a huge amount about fire and atmosphere interactions, particularly in the last 20 years or so since the Canberra fires in 2003. Mm-hmm. That was probably the, the time period that really kicked off the research and a huge amount of learning in that time period. But if we look at fire science going back God, 70 years or more, back to the early, to the 1950s and the 1960s, a lot of it was done by um, by um, foresters mm. and what they were looking at was forest management and they were looking at what how a fire behaves in much milder conditions usually than what we see in these major bushfires so there were the big bushfire events through Australia's history uh, by settlement history I should say yep. um, but a lot of the original science was looking at what would ha- what was happening in um, managed fires in terms of managing forest resources so a lot of the information that they had was what was happening at the surface, not what was happening above the surface, because mm. it wasn't really until the late 1900s that we had the modelling capability and the observations capability on satellites came on board in the 1970s. So until then, there wasn't a lot of information about what was happening with the fire above the surface. It was all looking at the surface, yeah. weather conditions. And then, of course, in the last 20 years, really, both in the United States and in Australia, we've seen this succession of major fire events that we've been able to collect a whole heap of observations on, which have told us a lot more about what the fire is doing above the surface and the fire and atmosphere interactions. And when we're talking about fire and atmosphere interactions, one of the obvious things that people would have seen is the big smoke plumes and convection Mm. columns, some of which rotate over the fire, things like fire whirls or fire-generated vortices. Um, And as people have had more and more mobile phones and be able to go out onto fire grounds and take video footage of these, we've learned more about them. And then, of course, there's the big pyroaccumulonimbus clouds where the fire actually generates enough energy to produce its own thunderstorm. Um, And some of the impacts of those kinds of fires has been phenomenal. So for the past 10 years or so, we've been running coupled fire atmosphere models, um, which link together an atmospheric model and a fire spread model at each time step that the models run. And by linking the two together, we can look at the interactions between a fire in the atmosphere and of course it's really difficult to go out into a bushfire and take observations Um, so using these kinds of simulation models is one of the ways that we can try and understand what's going on um, without putting people or equipment right in the path of the fire and we've learned a huge amount in the last 20 years but unfortunately as that time's progressed we've seen more and more major events that we need to learn from at the same time. Talk us through what's happening as we sort of um, go up through the atmosphere because I know we have various layers and various things happen in various layers of our atmosphere. I mean, just in terms of sort of, I mean, you've got the heat, you've got the smoke, you've got all the the ash and debris. How, How far up into the atmosphere do these things extend over some of these major fires? They can go up to 15 kilometres high oh, wow. in terms of smoke emissions. Um, and that was where some of the early research was done, still some of the United States re- research on the pyroaccumulonimbus clouds, because they can actually inject a whole heap of smoke particles and you know, other yeah. material into the stratosphere. So they punch through the top of the atmosphere as we know it where the weather happens, into the stratosphere. And then once you've got all these particulates up there, they actually circulate the globe and can continue to circulate the globe because they don't settle back down to Earth um, for a period of several years. And that's part of where the nuclear winter theory comes in, Mm. that if you've got all of these emissions at the top of the atmosphere, they can actually stop the sun coming to the surface and you end up with the nuclear winter. One of the interesting things about it was that originally um, a lot of the research on pyrocumulating 
started in the United States and it was because the US military were trying to spy on somebody in the Middle East and there was a pyrocumulonimbus cloud back over the US continent and all the particulates from that blocked the satellite, hmm. the spy satellite, um, from whoever they were trying to spy on. And that was where a lot of the research actually started on these events was actually from a military <laughs> um, motivation. So at the top of the atmosphere, those are some of the impacts that can happen. But in terms of what we're looking at a lot in our work, we're obviously interested in the troposphere. And one of the things that we've learned a lot about in the last 10 years or so is what's happening in the boundary layer. So the boundary layer in meteorology is the layer that heats up and cools down during the day. And in Australia, particularly in heatwave situations and on our bad fire days, that boundary layer can be about five kilometres deep. Okay. So we'll quite easily get a, a layer of mixing above the surface, which is four or five kilometres deep on a bad fire day. And, of course, the winds in that layer, not just the winds at the surface, but the winds in that layer can then interact with the fire plume and then drive the surface fire spread. And particularly when we've got um, topography and a lot of you know, mountainous terrain, we get a lot of interactions and a lot of turbulence um, that can then interact with the fire and the atmosphere mm. and the terrain. So you get these really complicated and um, fire-modified wind patterns around a fire in the particular one that's generating a lot of energy, and that can then change the way that the fire behaves. So a lot of the work that we've been doing at is looking at how those winds above the surface can interact with the fire and produce these really fast fire runs. So in terms of the Black Summer fires, um, people will remember the, the massive fire runs that happened into New Year's Eve on the 30th and the 31st of December, and both in northern Victoria, um, Malakuta obviously, um, and also the, fire, the Badger fire in New South Wales was a, made a significant run. And all of these were in the overnight period. So the Badger fire ran 36 kilometres in the middle of the night because we had this wind above the surface in what was a heatwave boundary layer. So it was a really, really hot layer above the surface. And the fire made this massive run overnight because it was effectively running in what to the fire felt like a daytime atmosphere, um, but in the middle of the night. So we're trying to understand those sorts of processes. Yeah, as well. I, mean, I mean, that's fascinating to me because I, I suspect, you know, every, every firefighter has that hope that, you know, overnight they'll gain some ground. You know, you, you, you yeah. hear about that all the time and, and, you know, it makes some sense. You know, you've got a 42 degree day with high winds, you know, in the middle of the day and, and we know what it's like in Australia. You know, we all long for those, those cooler nights. It might be mid-20s, but it's not, not mid-40s and, and the winds die down, of course, as well. So is, is this a new phenomenon that you're seeing with regards to fires, these more, more sort of significant fires we've had recently or is this the sort of thing that we've seen in the past or elsewhere in the world? We've seen it in the past, but certainly not to the extent that we saw in the 1925 season. And we're definitely seeing other places in the world. So we're talking to United States researchers mm. um, about a whole collection of fire meteorology um, topics at the moment. And the overnight fire runs is something that they're having issues with as well. And there's a number of fires in the States that have taken these big overnight runs. Um, but from... In terms of what we experience, obviously, normally you expect the temperature to drop a little bit in the overnight period, but that's what because we get this shallow layer, this temperature inversion near the surface. But in a heat wave, it's not very far above the surface. So you've actually got that hot air is retained, and all it does is if you know, the nice analogy is a layer of vinegar and olive oil. Mm, right. <laughs> yeah 
you know, jar. So you get this shallow, dense layer near the surface where the air cools and then you've got hotter air sitting above it. But if you think about the energy from a fire, when a fire's emitting energy from the surface in the overnight period, it just mixes out that shallow, cooler layer and you end up with the really hot air above still driving the fire spread in the overnight. But it's a massive challenge for firefighters because obviously they can't get around the fire and, mm. you know, put their suppression techniques in in the overnight period. So a fire that might become, might have expect, been expected to be a one-day fire that they can catch in the overnight period becomes a three-day fire or even a three-day and three-night fire during a heat wave. And we've seen a number of fires like that in Western Australia mm. in the last couple of years. And obviously it's got massive impacts on the firefighters because they're fighting fires day and night. Day and night yeah. But also <laughs> there's a the potential for community evacuations in the middle of the night as well. Yeah. And with this level of modelling that you're now sort of involved with and so forth. I mean, how much predictability is there in terms of you know actual events like this where, where the fire is likely to burn overnight? Are you able, to, you know, are we at the point of precision where we're able to actually make those predictions? I mean, I know, I know how impossibly complicated some of these scenarios are. How's that looking? Yeah, I've been working with fire and atmosphere models for about 10 years now. And one of the things that's really reassuring is that every time we learn something new and we go out and we talk to the fire agencies about it, they say, yes, that makes sense with what we observed on the ground. So anecdotally, there's a really good match between what people are observing and what the model's producing. Mm. We've only really had this kind of capability for a few years, so we need to do a lot more testing on a lot more events to show that the model's reliable in a whole range of circumstances, I mean, same as, as any good science process. But certainly what we're learning um, reconciles with what people are seeing. And so the next step is how do we actually use this in real time? In terms of the modelling capability, because we're running these simulations on a supercomputer, it takes a huge amount of supercomputing time and at the moment to run a day of simulation time it's taking us around about a day of real time Mm. so because of the computer power that's required we can't do it in real time at the moment obviously computing technology is changing so fast at the moment that it's quite reasonable that we can expect to be able to run these things in real time in the future Um, but in terms of talking to the fire agencies we work really closely with the fire agencies here at the bureau um, in operations and in research so we're trying we're developing training packages um, which are supported by the Bushfire Natural Hazards CRC to train all of the people who are working in fire prediction around the country about what these new learnings are that are coming out of coupled modelling so that then people can work out and watch for the real the ingredients in real time. Mm. So when we're doing predictions, whether it's a weather forecast or a fire prediction, a lot of it comes down to pattern recognition. So you look for the same ingredients that have happened at major events during the past and you look for those ingredients in, yeah. in future events. Mika, just before I let you go, one last question for you. You mentioned the use of satellites, which is obviously, you know, a key part of this. But I also have this image in my head of like a fleet of small drones, which may or may not be sacrificed, heading into these fire, you know, fire and atmosphere sort of regions so the, to, to make a range of measurements. Is, is that the sort of thing going on at the moment? I mean, you seem to have an incredible amount of data at your disposal. We do have some data. We'd always like more. Obviously, more data for scientists is, yep. is the golden 
it's, it's the gold standard. Um, drones are difficult to fly in a fire environment because obviously we've got firefighting aircraft mm. and what we can't have is firefighting aircraft and drones in the same space. Um, there is some really interesting research work that's been doing been done out of the States. There's a team at San Jose University um, who are using some really nice software, selection, software um, technology that they have and also looking at drones and new ways of taking measurements. So they're probably leading the world in terms of how can we get observations from a fire ground. Um, so drones, I think, will definitely be um, the way of the future, but we've probably been just a little bit slow to, to be able to use that technology safely where we've got aircraft flying around in mm. fire. Yep, interesting. And uh, just finally, how are we looking for this coming fire season down the East Coast, uh, South Australia, Western Australia? What's it looking like for us? Well, certainly on the East Coast, wetter than what it has been the last few years. So we've got the La Nina um, on the doorstep at the moment and obviously some massive issues with thunderstorms and particularly hailstones um, mm. in the last few days and the last couple of weeks. So with that trend towards wet conditions and the seasonal outlook is definitely looking at wetter conditions and slightly milder con conditions than what we've had recently, um, the odds are that it looks like most of the th problems are going to be with thunderstorms and rainfall this season um, rather than fires. Of course, with that rainfall we've obviously got higher levels of grass fuel which are out there so if we get dry later in the season um, then there's still the potential that that grass fuel could dry out and we could see significant runs um, but probably the greatest risk for this season is in western Australia right. um, because they're not catching a lot of the, the winter the summer rainfall that they're seeing in the eastern states because they don't get the influence of the La Nina so certainly the potential for some some significant fires in western Australia yeah. um, but obviously with these things they cycle round and you know, the, the good rainfall produces lots of fuel that then dries out in the next dry spell and we've got the potential for more fires again. Yep, that's part of Australia, unfortunately, and other parts of the world as well. Mika, it's a fascinating work that you're doing. We'd love to get you back on at some stage, maybe next time in the actual studio um, here in Melbourne, of course. Um, good, good to talk to you. Keep up that good work and hopefully that predictability of these fires and conditions will just get better and better as we go along. But thanks so much for chatting to us today on Triple R. Thanks, Sean. Folks, uh, that was Dr. Mika Pierce from the Bureau of Meteorology, a senior research scientist in the fire weather area. We're going to take a break for some important station announcements. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about something uh, very different, uh, but very cool. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and GoGo. On the line with us now is Dr. Laura Otter. She is a postdoctoral fellow in biomineralisation at the Research School of Earth Sciences in the College of Science at the Australian National University up in Canberra. Good morning, Laura. How are you going? Hi, Dr. Shane. I'm well, thanks. It's great to talk to you now. You you work in an area that, uh, look, I've got to be honest, I didn't even realise some of this stuff was happening in Australia and it's fantastic, but mollusk shells, they're, I mean, I think everyone's seen them. They've got some weird properties. Tell us a bit about them first. Like what, what sort of things are, are different about mollusk shells to, I guess, a snail shell, for example? Yeah, so um, a lot of these um, shells grow nacre, which is also called sort of a supermaterial in the engineering area. And it's just this beautiful iridescent glossy material that we find inside of shells and on the outside of pearls too. And uh, what we call a bio nanocomposite material. Bio stands for that it's being formed by living animals actually. And nanocomposite just means that there are two ingredients mainly. So this is calcium carbonate on one hand, um, making up the larger proportion of the shell. And then on the other hand, there's also these organic materials like sugars and proteins. And these uh, ingredients are not just thrown together randomly by the animal, but they're actually laid down with the utmost precision and control. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, one one of the things I find amazing is um, the smoothness of these. And you know, one of the things I did a lot of research on when I was when I was younger was you know atomic force microscopy and looking at looking at actual atomic layers that you could do with that microscope. And mm. when I look at these things, I think, gee, what do they look like on that scale? Because they look smoother than glass. They're incredible looking. Yeah. Yeah, they do, um, and they're. Um yeah, this, um, they are organized in like little layers. So the calcium carbonate is a bit of a thicker layer, but still we are talking micro scale, um, sort of. Uh, like you were mentioning, we could pick this up with an atomic frost microscope. And um, then the uh, organic layers are much thinner. So this, uh, these layers alternate in cross-section and form something like a brick wall pattern, actually. Mm. Um, so perhaps think of mollusks more like uh, precise engineers than just any random animal. <laughs> yeah. And what, what's the benefit for the mollusk? I mean, I, I understand, you know, there, there are obvious benefits in making hard um, structures to prevent them from being eaten and so forth. But we don't see the same structures, for example, in a, 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 lo- you know, a, a lobster or, a, you know, many snails or other, you know, we, but we do see this structure in, in mollusks and, and so forth. I mean, what, what's the benefit to them? Yeah, so uh, nacre is, of course, not just pretty, but it's also this very tough material. And mollusks grow nacre, actually, as a layer of armor to protect their very soft parts that are located inside in between the shells. So they find a way um, that make their shells extremely tough and crack resistant, building them this way. And um, so this is one of the features that this um, brick wall architecture has. So um, by developing their shells since millions of years, since the Cambrian period, um, they actually had a lot of practice time to really perfect the design of their shells. And um, actually, it's interesting to say that we ourselves can't make materials that strong and tough. Mm. So we, of course, have um, ways to make tough materials and light materials at high pressures and temperatures and with all kinds of fancy ingredients. But really just making something at ambient pressure, at ambient temperature, with just something as simple as calcium carbonate and a bit of protein is just not possible for us. So we can really look at these shells to figure out how to make better materials in the future. And um, this is what a lot of engineers do. Yeah, I love the fact that mollusks are better engineers than us. I mean, we'll get there. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they've had millions of years. We've only had a few hundred thousand. You know, we've got a, there's a bit of catch-up time. With, um, with regards to sort of... Uh, looking at things like the changing climate of the world and so forth, I understand that you know we've we've got a range of things that we can we can do. We can drill ice cores at Antarctica. We can look at tree rings. We can do a whole lot of things. But these these mollusk shells have some value in that space as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, in this area called paleoclimate research that you mentioned, mollusks are just very important because these shells um, from uh, layer by layer, and um, we call these increments. And each of these little increments contains signals and information from the environment in which the shell grew in. So we can decipher these signals um, using some empirical methods, and then we can reconstruct past oceanic conditions. For example, magnesium is used to reconstruct water temperatures, or strontium is used to reconstruct salinity of the water or the saltiness of the water in which the shell has grown. But also isotopes can play a really important role, and the most um, Widely applied temperature reconstruction is actually based on oxygen isotopes. Oh. Isotopes are just different versions of a certain element that differ slightly by weight. Mm. And um, so, for example, the air that we breathe consists actually of three different types of oxygen. And so um, over time, these compositions change even more so in water and in the seawater environment. So on the shell, we'll record this as it grows. And then we can drill 
little um, drill cores out of the shells or do some in-situ measurements from shell cross-sections and reconstruct how this grows. Yeah. Look, it's, um, it's, it's fascinating there when we think of um, mollusks because, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're pretty much everywhere across the globe in terms of the oceans, yeah? Yeah, definitely. Not so much at uh, uh, polar regions, perhaps, but also a few available there and very long-lived species too, living hundreds of years per individual, but actually all across the globe, really. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, so you've got that. I mean, one of the great things about that is then you, it doesn't matter where you look, how, how far you want to go down, you can, you can find presumably mollusk shells that take you back a long way. How far back in time can we look with mollusk shells? I reconstruct uh, all the way into the past, like all the geological deep time record, actually. Um, there's a bit of change that can happen if there is um, not a great preservation condition, but mm -hmm. usually we can use these shells a lot back into deep time, millions of years. Millions of years, yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Now, of course, uh, you know, we, we do have to have some information about, I, I suppose, the environment they're in so we know what we're looking at. And that's where mm. your, your laboratory there, your agriculture lab at ANU is, is taking some very interesting sort of pathways to help us with that part of the problem. What, what are you doing in the lab there in terms of these mollusks? As my understanding is you're, you're growing them and you're making them very specific to what we need to be able to look back into our climate effectively. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we have a little aquaculture lab at ANU. So um, coming from Sydney, I was missing the ocean. So I wanted to set up a little bit of ocean myself in the lab. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so, and we um, we can take any bivalve there and put that into the aquaria and grow it under controlled conditions. And that's why we can actually observe how elements and isotopes are incorporated into the shell by just watching it grow and doing measurements as it grows. And then afterwards, we have this um, shell that grew in very controlled and confined conditions. And um, that will give us actually a better way to base our, of our models with which we reconstruct deep time. Yeah. So, so what sort of conditions can you control? I mean, obviously, salinity is an obvious one, which is pretty, I guess, pretty simple. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, what other yeah, things... But yeah, other things are important to really uh, control temperature down to 0 0.5 degrees um, and also water quality parameters. I mean, everyone, I think, have heard that like um, bivalves need really good quality water to grow in, to thrive. Mm. So that's important. Feeding them, of course, is also important. And yeah, all kinds of environmental parameters we can actually control very well in the lab setting. Yeah. So once you've got a whole range of them with all these various parameters, and presumably you can shift those. So, you know, you can up the salinity by a little bit to, you know, mm -hmm. to, I, I suppose, mimic various points in geological time. I mean, essentially, you're creating a ruler, a ginormous long ruler with a separate mollusk at each point. And when someone wants to compare something, they just go along, oh, it's mollusk number 472. That that mimics the conditions that were at that particular time. Is that, is that what's happening? Yeah, absolutely. We call this a calibration. And um, yeah, this is just a shell-based thermometer in a way you could say, for example. Right now, we are growing them at different temperatures and um, we'll be able to make better, um, yeah, paleoclimate temperature-related reconstructions using these shells for the calibration process. Yeah, it's fantastic. And how long does it take to, to grow them, the mollusks? Oh, well, and that depends a bit on the species because they have different growth rates. But right now we're growing the Sydney cockle. And um, this one is, is a fairly fast grower, actually. It's like a, a, a bit of a micron each day. So um, you just need to figure out how much shell you want to have in the end and then just let the experiment run for that sort of period of time. Yeah. And, and the, the layers that they, they pop down, I mean, how long does it take before you sort of start to see that 
opalescent sort of appearance to it because one of the things I suspect some of our listeners are aware of, not all, is that your optical characteristics of materials change as the thickness of materials change. So, for example, if we were layering gold, it doesn't appear gold when it's super thin, when it's on nanoscale. So the thickness levels actually appear different colors, um, which is unusual. How long does it take before you start to see that beautiful iridescent pattern with the mollusk shells? Yeah, that's a really good question. We have a good tool to do this, actually, because when you imagine you're taking any shell from the beach and then just pop it into a quarry, you don't actually know after a few days how much did it grow, right? Mm. So what we do is uh, pulse chase labeling experiments where we just pop in a bit of excess uh, trace elements, in my case, usually strontium, which is uh, readily incorporated by the shell and it doesn't stress the animal. And um, and then just uh, afterwards, when we have like a polished cross-section of the shell, we can pick up where this uh, strontium-rich line is, and then we can reconstruct and just measure how much did it grow during that experiment. Yeah. So we can we can make this actually more precise than just with an optical indicator. That's fantastic. So, Laura, just one last question for you. If we're, if we're sitting here a million years from now, are people going to look back at, at the mollusks from our day and go, oh, my God, look at the filth in those shells? Is that is that how it's going to look? Yeah, I hope not. I think we should uh, crack down on um, actually these kind of issues and um, get our things sorted. Yeah. The environment needs it. Yeah, indeed. Well, look, I'm glad that you're able to recreate part of the beach in your lab. It sounds like a, you know, a, a great thing to have. Um, how, just, how big is the, the sort of tank that you have these in? Oh, we have different size tanks. Right now, our, um, our Sydney cockles are sitting in 220-litre aquaria. Different ones, five times, five, five different aquaria. But we also have 2,000 and 3,000 litre aquaria for different kinds of experiments. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> well, Laura, thanks so much for chatting to us. Good luck with the, the ongoing work. It sounds super fascinating. These materials, um, the engineering behind them from biology is just extraordinary. Um, thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. Folks, that was Dr. Laura Otter, a postdoctoral fellow in biomineralization in the Research School of, Physical Sci- of Earth Sciences. Sorry at the Australian National University. We're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in just a moment. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. It's Einstein and Gogo time. I'm Dr. Shane. We've got a few minutes left, so I wanted to run through a few pieces of science. But first of all, isn't it lovely to be hearing some of those uh, sponsorship announcements on Triple R once again for things starting to open up that we can go back to and enjoy, like the, uh, dare I say it, and usually I get stick for this, but the good old days when we were able to go out and enjoy ourselves in community settings. So uh, wonderful to be playing some of those messages for you. Now, uh, let me talk you through a few things that have sort of caught my interest over the last week or so that I thought you might find fascinating. Some of you would be aware that back in 2016, a small craft called Juno that NASA launched um, started orbiting the planet Jupiter. And I think uh, we forget sometimes Jupiter's pretty bright in the sky at the moment. So if you actually look right up overhead, you should be able to see it at about nine o'clock, you know, at dark. As it gets dark, um, that really bright thing is not a star. It's not the International Space Station, but it's planet Jupiter. And, you know, even just a small pair of binoculars will let you see four of its major moons. But one of the things that I think Jupiter's fairly famous for, of course, is that giant red spot that we're all familiar with when we see a picture of Jupiter. Generally speaking, those photos are on the side of Jupiter where the giant red spot sort of happens to be. Now, of course, Jupiter rotates fairly quickly, so um, it's kind of nice that everyone shows the same photo. The other side of Jupiter actually is pretty interesting as well. 
It just doesn't have this giant red spot. But what uh, the Juno spacecraft has been looking at just recently, and this was sort of just published in um, last few days, is just how deep down that red spot goes. And I think most of us have probably not thought about this, but Jupiter is a gas giant. So it's just basically a big mix of gas. And what we don't know is some of these surface features, just how far down they extend into Jupiter. And the Juno craft has been looking in the sort of microwave, microwave range. So, you know, the same frequency of light that is used to cook your food uh, at some of the features of the atmosphere of Jupiter. And they've determined that in some case, some of these storms, including the Great Red Spot, are literally... Um, hundreds, hundreds of kilometers deep. So this is not a very sort of surface level effect. It is something that goes very, very deep into the atmosphere. So the Great Red Spot um, looks like it's about, you know, 200 or 200 to 500 kilometers deep, which is extraordinary. But when you look at either side of the Red Spot, we know there are those bands that run around Jupiter, and those are potentially as deep as 3,000 kilometers. Now, that's getting, you know, very, very sizable. Um, if you think about the size of the Earth, we're getting on towards, you know, 50% of the, the width of the Earth pretty much. And 3,000 kilometers is a substantial depth for a storm to sort of go into. So I think, you know, as is always the case with the other planets of our solar system, we're learning more and more. And the Juno spacecraft has been there for five years now and is still sending back some extraordinary pieces of information. Now, one of the other things that I wanted to mention on the show today was just uh, an interesting piece of work that has recently come out um, by a guy named Dan Dedieu from the Lumiere University in Lyon in France. And this is looking at which languages around the world have distinct words for blue and green. Now, for those of us who are native English speakers, we probably have never really thought about this, but there are a lot of languages where there are not distinct words for blue and green. And the question is, what is the reason for that? And this is where um, the group at Lumiere University have been looking into what possible optical effects may have led to languages being developed over over you know, very long periods of time where words to distinguish these two colours, which most of us can see pretty readily, um, are absent, or at least there's only one word for both colours. And it's interesting, but it seems as though, and there are a range of sort of contentious arguments still going on around this, but it seems as though when you look at a lot of different populations, it does depend on where exactly those populations are located. So one of the things that can happen with um, populations of humans that are in you know lots of sun, so there is a lot of sun, is we essentially get this condition called lens brun brunescence, which is kind of a, what it does is it sort of densifies the um, lens in your eye and it becomes a bit more opaque. And that means it makes it very hard to distinguish between certain colours. And it may be that in cases where there is a lot of sunlight, there is more of this happening in populations, and it means it's less likely that we distinguish all the colours as clearly as we once did. There's a whole lot of other theories that are going around as to why this might be the case. For example, you might it might be that if you lived near a large lake, um, you may actually have a different chance of having a separate word for blue. 
And that's because, of course, the distinction that you would see between the things growing around the lake, which are clearly a green color, versus the lake itself um, is quite strong. And so if your community grows up in that region, it may be more likely that you'll have distinct words for those two colors. Whereas if those sorts of features are not in your landscape, then there is less of a need for you to actually have those two colors um, in your language in a way that is distinct. So a whole lot of uh, interesting questions around that. And of, of course, I think the, the real answer is that there isn't one single answer. There's a range of things that are causing these colors to be seen differently. And I think it's, it's amazing to us that we, um, you know, for English speakers, these colors are pretty um, clearly um, separated, but we have to think back of where that, where that origin for that came from and recognize that it's not going to be the same necessarily in all languages, and it may very much depend on just how much sunlight there is where your language was originating. So some really, um, some really cool stuff there. And as I say, the, uh, the jury is still out, um, but I suspect the answer is there are many, many answers to this question. One is, for example, it seems um, more likely that if you have very, very large populations, you end up with um, more complex technologies and more complex things like dyeing of materials that leads to a distinction between colours that is needed um, for for those sorts of processes and those sorts of um, materials to be described correctly. So some very interesting stuff there with regards to light and the way it affects language, which is not something that that um, I think we talk about very often. Anyway, folks, uh, we're pretty much out of time here on Einstein and GoGo, and I'm going to be handing over in just a moment to the wonderful team from Eat It. I think uh, I can see that Cameron Smith is over there ready. He's probably in a very good mood today because I suspect he's probably been able to go to all his favourite restaurants and food outlets uh, that he has been disconnected from for so long. So no doubt a good showing, uh, show coming up. Um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm uh, Dr. Shane Triple R. So Dr. Shane RRR on Twitter. Um, I can't promise interesting content, but I can promise content. But until next week, I hope you have a wonderful week. I think things are starting to look really good in Victoria with our numbers coming down, which is fabulous. We'll have more science for you. Thanks so much for listening to Triple R and uh, stay safe out there. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.